1: Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have Stephen N. Firing. He's a professor of microbiology and immunology, also a professor of genetics, all of this at Dartmouth College. We're going to talk about uh, cancer therapy, immunotherapy. So Stephen, thanks for coming.
2: You're welcome. You're welcome, Richard. It's nice to be here with you.
1: Yeah, well, tell me about your research. What got you interested in cancer, first of all, and then why the immunotherapy angle?
2: Well, I think that cancer, if you're a biomedical researcher and have interests in biomedical research, cancer is a, uh, a one of the major diseases that we all deal with. I think all of us are affected by it. There's very few people who don't have a relative who's died from cancer or been affected by it. So it's, it's quite sort of um, prevalent. And it's also, biomedically, it's quite an interesting and very complex set of pathologies that really have involvement across all the different biomedical disciplines, genetics, biochemistry, immunology. So it's certainly an interesting area. And it's an area that gets a lot of attention and a lot of effort. And there's also a lot of potential to understand uh, basic biology when you're studying cancer.
1: What are your thoughts on how cancer first begins? Or is it more concerned, you know, how it evades the immune system and works with it? I mean, what So again, why within cancer, even though it does affect everybody, unfortunately, why the focus on the immunotherapy angle?
2: Definitely the right question. The history of cancer is that we have some pretty good treatments for cancers that have not metastasized in general. They can be treated with surgery. And if they have not metastasized, that's generally successful. They can be treated with radiation. And if they have not metastasized, that's generally pretty successful. Once a solid tumor has metastasized, so cancer biologists sort of tend to separate them into the lymphomas and leukemias and the solid tumors. So I work on the solid tumors, so I'll, I'll be talking about the solid tumors. Okay. Once a solid tumor has metastasized, it's spread to other parts of the body from wherever the primary cancer site was, the outcomes are poor, almost universal. So in general, it's going to be a battle and it's a battle that will enable the patient to stay alive for a period of time, but generally they're going to succumb to metastatic cancer. And often because the therapy is primarily chemotherapy, which is getting better all the time, but in general, it's not particularly well-crafted to only affect the cancer. So there's a lot of side effects, right? Most of us have known people, the obvious one is they've lost their hair going through chemo. We know that, we've seen it, we've had relatives. And there's a lot of other damage that's going on besides the losing of the hair, which usually comes back. And so the treatments for metastatic cancer are simply not good. Now, if we back up, there's been over 120 years of debate about whether the immune system recognizes cancer and is fighting cancer.
1: I have a question here. How do you think metastases start and is there communication, you know, using like extracellular vesicles or other means, other cell to cell communication? between primary tumors and uh, metastatic sites?
2: Can't metastases start as the tumor evolves and becomes takes on that characteristic. We could get into sort of a lot of biomedical details, but I don't think that's going to be particularly interesting to the, to the listeners. Okay. It is involving things like exosomes. There's a lot of complexity to it. It's not simply just breaking away from the cancer and getting into the bloodstream and then coming out of the bloodstream someplace else and, and forming another tumor. People know that there's a lot of circulating tumor cells in, in cancer patients. The vast majority of them are not going to form into metastases. So the, the metastatic process is quite complex. It seems to evolve a de-differentiation of the cancer at the primary site so that it becomes capable of traveling through tissues, and then the sort of switching back into its previous characteristics once it gets to a favorable site where it can potentially start to grow. So there's um, it's a lot of complex steps in it. Exosomes are, are almost certainly involved. And there's a lot of research trying to understand the the pathways. And
1: um, At what point do you think cancer starts interacting with our immune system and what is the interplay like? How does it know what the immune system is looking for, that it's in danger itself of being attacked? And what do you think this this dance or this dialogue or this, this interaction looks like at various stages?
2: Yeah, so I think one of the most interesting points that's hard to demonstrate really effectively, but the idea is that we are probably getting cancer much more frequency And before anybody ever knows it existed, the immune system has killed it. There is some data, both from mice and from some human studies that support that, but it's sort of like what you can't see, you can't measure. Right. So but that's a probably it's pretty well accepted. But the frequency and um, and how important that is in protecting us is is clearly debated. But the cancer develops different characteristics that can be recognized by the immune system. They're not recognized in the really robust manner that, let's say, a pathogen, a bacteria or a virus or a fungus is recognized by the immune system. But there are subtle signs which the immune system recognizes it's likely that we would be getting cancer a lot more frequently if there was no immune system to protect us. And sort of the easiest demonstration of that is we have uh, mouse lines that are, they lack certain aspects of the immune system. And when they are treated with carcinogens that develop tumors because they cause mutations, the mice that lack the immune system components get significantly more tumors than the animal's that have a normal immune system. So it's not directly, it's not in people, but it's a pretty good indication that the immune system is probably protecting
1: us. Well, I'm sure it's protecting us, yeah. Yeah, Like you said, most cancers, I guess, if you look at all cancer, probably everyone has small bits of it in them. And most people's immune systems, you know, keep it at bay for quite a period period of time. And then when it does happen, again, people's immune systems reduce the incidence of metastases, but it still breaks through in many cases. But At least we have our immune systems to help us.
2: That that seems to be the view. That's the view. Like I said, because you're sort of trying to prove a negative, you're proving something that's been eliminated that you've never seen. There's not a lot of like quantitative data. Another supportive idea is that, as you know, although cancer can hit very young kids in general, it's a disease of of late middle age and, um, you know, senior citizen status at which it's also, um, there's certainly weakening of the immune system that's going on at the same time, right? So there's another, um, it's a correlation. It's not a proof. In science, we we have to recognize the difference between a correlation and a proof. But it, it does seem like the immune system is recognizing cancers and predicting and defending us. But then the point is we get cancer. So why do we get cancer? And I think one thing that people can understand clearly is that the cancer develops the capability to suppress the immune response against it, right? So it's literally protecting itself. Mm, um, right. And you could think about it as if it was like, you know, let's say there's a disturbance in in somebody's house, and the police go there, and they say, well, you know, we heard a lot of noise. And then there's somebody there who's quite appropriate looking, and um, a reputable person says, oh, no, everything's fine, officer. It was just... Uh, Just a little bit of, um, you know, getting too excited about something. There's really no problem here. So you could think about it as the same way. The immune system gets to the cancer, says, well, I think we have a problem here. But then the cancer sends molecular signals of various sorts to the immune system that says, just relax. No big problem. Everything's fine
1: can you tell in vivo in a dish or in a mouse model or in a person can you look at various markers immunomarkers and see is there a certain critical size of a tumor that causes a dampening of the immune the immune response do you think that this this interplay turns on this deception turns on super early or is it only at a certain point in a cancer's development
2: That's an interesting question likely it turns on relatively early so that by the time cancer is detected, it needs to be of some size or you never know it's there, it's already happening, right? So if we look at tumors that are clinically recognized tumors in patients, there's obvious characteristics that we recognize as that's an immunosuppressive characteristic. The cancer is doing something that is protecting itself from the immune system.
1: Before we continue... the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests and more. Visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show.
2: And many, and often it's doing many different things. There's many aspects.
1: Okay. Yeah. I just wondered from what I understand, a one centimeter solid mass tumor is approximately a billion cells. And that's maybe the first time that those things are observable at that size. And again, at that size, is, there, is it obvious that there's immune suppression going on or is it, uh, does it happen much earlier than that, do you think?
2: I think it probably has to happen earlier because by the time it gets to that size, the immune suppressive mechanisms, which can be quite variable, there's lots of different things that get used, but they're there. And if you look for them, you'll find them in that one centimeter tumor in that small tumor, they'll be there. So they must be developing earlier, and it's just hard, harder for us to sort of study them, but they show up pretty early.
1: What do you think some of the signaling is between cancer and our body? You know, is, it, uh, the, is there a down regulation of certain receptors or cell membrane features that cause cancer to, I mean, sorry, cause the immune system to bypass infected cells? Or like, what are these, what you constitutes know, a, an immune defense?
2: You know, Richard, it's probably all of the above there's a lot of different possibilities. So one example, if you talk about downregulating something, our cells have a, a molecule, it's called class one. So it's, it's part of the immune system and all the cells in the body express class one. And it's one way in which um, the immune system could recognize, for example, a virally infected cell so that um, the immune system defends us against viruses in part by recognizing cells that are infected and killing them, right? And one of the ways they do that is through the expression of this class one on the outer membrane. So a lot of tumors uh, suppress the expression of class one. They're not expressing it, they're expressing it at low levels. So that sort of helps make them more invisible to the immune system. The other things they may do are sort of positive things. They can express molecules that are directly immunosuppressive signals for other immune cells. They're they're simply giving those cells a direct immunosuppressive signal. Another thing they do is they, they secrete certain types of molecules that recruit immune cells, but the immune cells vary on a continuum between immunosuppressive and immunostimulatory. And so the tumors are secreting a molecule that recruits immunosuppressive immune cells into the tumor. So that when the active parts of the immune system that are recognized in the tumor get there, they get the message of immunosuppression from the immunosuppressive white blood cells that cancer has brought in. One of the things to understand about the immune system is that it's a constant balance of stimulation and suppressive signals. That's how it works. And the reason, you know, evolutionarily why it must work that way is because it's also able to damage the host, right? We get autoimmune diseases. They can be very severe. It's sort of like an army or a police force that it's it's got weapons, but the weapons can damage, damage bystanders. They can damage the civilians. They can damage the host. So they have to be kept in check. And there's constant stimulation signals and suppressive signals that are going on all the time in the immune system. So this idea about, well, the cancer has some immunosuppressive signaling, it's sort of not a surprise. It's going on all the time in order to keep the immune system properly balanced.
1: Do you think it's possible that cancer could somehow signal our immune system to attack some of our healthy cells, or is it not nearly that crazy? I was just thinking, I don't know how how deep the rabbit hole goes, but that's why I asked.
2: Yeah, no, I think that it'll probably not happen because the cancer has signaled that, but it can happen because the immune system is recognizing the cancer and the response can spread to healthy cells. So the immune system could start attacking healthy cells as well as the cancer. And in certain cancers, and the classic case is melanoma, where the attack of the melanoma by the immune system can also lead to the immune system attacking the normal melanocytes, which give our skin the pigment. And you can get patches of depigmented skin. It's referred to as vitiligo. And that vitiligo is probably, it's considered to be a good sign if you have melanoma.
1: If you like this podcast, please click the link in
2: the
0: description to subscribe and review us on iTunes.
2: Because it means that your immune system is recognizing and attacking melanocytes and it's almost certainly also attacking the, the melanoma, which was what started the anti-melanocyte immune response.
1: Oh, wow. Okay.
2: I don't think that the melanoma was directing the, uh, actively directing the immune system towards the normal melanocytes. I think it's a byproduct of the recognition of the melanoma that then spreads to attacking normal similar cells.
1: What are some of the common immune interactions that cells have even in a healthy state? And then maybe a few that seem to occur between cancer cells and the immune system that don't seem to occur between healthy cells.
2: Well, one of the ones we were talking about is the downregulation of class one. So the healthy cells express class one and uh, the immune system is, is going around and um, basically looking at the class one and deciding whether it, it's appropriate or not and, um, and getting information about that cell by surveying the changes in the class one expression on the cell. The immune system is getting activation and suppression signals all the time from cells. And it needs to be sort of given that those signals, it needs to be kind of kept in balance. And so one of the things that could actually help treat the cancer is to make the cancer be immunostimulatory, which is what I actually focus on. So we look at the cancer and we could say, yeah, it's got all these immunosuppressive characteristics. No wonder the immune system is not able to make much progress in destroying it. What if we give it a lot of immunostimulation through reagents that we understand and change that environment in the tumor so that the immune system can now effectively attack that tumor? And if that goes well, we can expand the immune response to attack tumors that we haven't directly manipulated. So that's sort of the basis of immunotherapy is any immunotherapy that's going to work has to overcome the immunosuppression that is manifested by the cancer, by the individual tumor. So all the therapies take that into account.
1: How do you imagine that, um, again, immunity... You know, what what does the inspection of a cell look like? Is there a certain immune cell that... Is in the vicinity of a cell and it's continually sniffing or reading the again the you know the exosomes put out by that cell or like how would it observe the cell membrane condition in multiple spots on the cell membrane? How would it do such a thing? You imagine the
2: first the first thing that really needs to happen is it needs to be a an immunostimulatory environment, an inflammatory environment that will then recruit, particularly in the case of cancer, T cells, a certain type of immune cell, a T cell to the site. And once those cells are being recruited to the site, then they will start to physically interact with the cancer cells and literally interact with class one on that cancer cell and look at whether the class one is saying, yes, attack me, or whether the class one is saying, no, you're not interested in me. So it's sort of a a pretty odd, but but sophisticated system by which T-cells recognize what immunologists call antigen. Antigen is something that lymphocytes recognize and respond against. Mm -hmm. And T-cells in particular have a very complex way of looking at antigen. They look at pieces of protein on class one or it's other part of what we call HLA or MHC, class two. It gets into sort of a lot of details about T cells and how they do it. But it's, it's quite interesting because what it's enabling the T cells to do is to literally look inside that cancer cell and look for aberrant proteins, whether they are from a pathogen or whether they're from a cancer, it's the same thing. They can see inside the cell and recognize cells that they are Selected to respond against.
1: Okay, so they look at uh, surface receptors and other features to indicate the you know the interior condition of a cell. That makes sense. How sensitive is this uh, observation? Uh, you know, if you have a healthy cell adjacent to a cancer cell, has it been observed? You know, in a lab that uh, the monitoring is that good, it's that specific that literally at the individual cell level, this can be observed.
2: Yeah, it's very specific. So the T cell has one specificity. It's essentially looking for, in this case, class one with a particular peptide from an internal protein. But that cell probably has hundreds of thousands of class one molecules with many, many different peptides. But there's only going to be one that that T cell is interested in and will recognize. And so uh, one or two or a few of these class one plus peptides that interact with a specific T cell and the T cell receptor recognizes that interaction and that T cell will attack that cell and kill it. So it's, it's very specific and there's lots of signals that are going to be ignored to get to the one that's really the one that that particular T cell is after. And every T cell is looking for a slightly different signal. So that enables us to respond to all sorts of different antigens.
1: I, I do understand it's specific. I'm just wondering, literally, how is the sensing accomplished? Is, you know, uh, For a given cell that would, would have this ligand or protein or whatever it is on its mm-hmm. cell surface, you know, I guess it would have it in hundreds or thousands of places and it would be evenly distributed over the cell membrane periphery? Or like, how do you envision this
2: happens? Yeah, more more or less. There is some clustering that that happens, but first approximation, it's fine to say it's evenly distributed. And then if there is a stimulation so that the T cells are recruited to the area and they're active and they're looking for targets, then they're scanning the surface and they're interacting with their unique, each one has a unique T cell receptor, it's called, that will... He's scanning these class 1 molecules, and if they find the bright peptide on the class 1 molecules, they'll lock onto it. That sends a signal through the signaling apparatus to the T cell. And the T cell then gets the signal that, like, yes, we have found a target. Yes, time to kill it. And they will e- express the various molecules that will enable it to kill the cell that it's formed the target with, which becomes another sort of complex process. But once the decision is made, then the the steps are, are always pretty much the same of what's going to happen next. It's going to form a tight bond to that cell, and it's going to start secreting these molecules into the space between the T cell and the target cell that will form pores literally in the membrane of the target cell, and then it will secrete enzymes that are going to enter that target cell through the pores and basically kill it. So the the decision comes from that class one peptide interacting with a strong enough affinity for the specific T cell receptor that's all over that T cell.
1: I thought there was, and there are other mechanisms like phagocytosis. What does that look like mechanistically versus uh, this?
2: So there's two sort of broad arms of the immune system. The adaptive immune system is the lymphocytes, and they develop each of which has the unique capability to recognize antigen. When they get antigen, they expand like many, many fold. They attack the source of the antigen, whether it's a pathogen or a cancer or something else or an infected cell until the antigen is gone. And then most of those cells die and some of them form memory cells which are going to be able to protect us if we see that situation again. This is the basis of vaccines, right? We're all waiting for a COVID vaccine. Some of us have gotten it. And the idea is we're going to train our immune system and our lymphocytes to recognize that and to have memory cells that as soon as they see that, they start to divide really fast. They create a whole army of cells that will attack that pathogen, right? So that's the adaptive arm in the immune system. There's also what's called the innate arm of the immune system, which are things like macrophages, neutrophils, these other cells that they don't really, they're not specialized for a particular antigen, but they respond to immune signals, to inflammation, and they can attack and kill tumor cells. One example would be if a tumor cell, let's say, expresses no class one at all right? No class one, not just a little bit, but none. Then there are cells, they're called natural killer cells, which actually have receptors that they're scanning. If there's an immune response going on, and they find a cell that doesn't express class one, they will kill that, right? Because it's like, wait a minute, you're hiding from us. You're not allowed to hide from us. And that's the system whereby we'll get rid of that type of cell,
1: right? What's the secondary um, recognition, If they're not recognizing the MHC class 1, what are they recognizing instead? They're
2: recognizing the lack of class 1. So they have a receptor, the suppressive receptor, that when it interacts with any (laughs) class 1, it sends a suppressive signal to the natural killer cell. But if that natural killer cell is scanning a cell and they are not getting that suppressive signal, then they may say, you're a target.
1: Okay. I see what you mean.
2: so even, even these sort of individual systems that I'm pointing out, they also illustrate how the whole thing works, right? This The activating signals and the suppressing signals and the constant bound.
1: Okay, I gotcha. Interesting. So what are you working on in particular? Like what's, what's well, your specific what I, work about?
2: What I work on is pretty simple. We've now discussed the idea that the tumors that we recognize, we know they're immunosuppressive. The immune system recognizes them. There's variability in how well they recognize them across different tumor types and in different patients. But in general, the immune system recognizes them, but they are immunosuppressive. The tumors are suppressing the response. We know of various sorts of reagents that are very immunostimulatory. We put them in our vaccines, right? So in the vaccine, they're usually called an immune adjuvant. The vaccine will have an adjuvant that wakes up the immune system and an antigen, which is what the immune system recognizes. So for the COVID-19 vaccines, it's the spike protein is the antigen, and there's various adjuvants that depend upon the vaccine. So those adjuvants are immunostimulatory. So essentially what I study is directly putting an immunostimulatory reagent of some sort into a tumor so that the immunosuppression is changed into immunostimulation. And then a whole series of events occur because of that. And we're trying to understand what are those events and how do we optimize it so we get the best immune response against the tumor that we've physically treated in some way. And we get the best response that's going to go out systemically and find the metastatic disease and attack.
1: So depending on the type of cancer... Are there tried and true methods that the cancer uses? I know they're heterogeneous, but again, still is there is there a sequence of immune suppressing events that happen? Is it common, you know, across tumors or amongst particular yeah. tumor type? Does it happen the same way all the time?
2: There's ten or fifteen mechanisms that are likely to some fraction of those ten or fifteen mechanisms are going to be involved. Generally, there's certain types of Immune suppressive cells that will have been recruited into the tumor, most commonly certain uh, immune suppressive innate cells. You remember, we talked about the innate and the adaptive. Mm-hmm. So, there's a lot of innate cells. And, and most one thing that we've learned in the last, let's say, 20 years is that most of the recognizable immune cells, the white blood cells, they can have different phenotypes spanning very immunosuppressive to very immunostimulatory attacking right the same type of cell, whether it's a macrophage or a dendritic cell or a neutrophil or a lymphocyte, a B cell or a T cell, they can span from being really immunosuppressive to being really immunostimulatory where they attack and they recruit other cells to attack. So when we change the environment, the environment usually has a lot of immunosuppressive white blood cells of various sorts because the tumor has recruited them. We can change their phenotype so that they are no longer immunosuppressive because they have a different set of signals and they respond to that different set of signals. And now they may be able to turn around and immediately attack the tumor or they'll send out signals that are going to recruit other attacking type of white blood cells, whether they're adaptive or innate lymphocytes or macrophage type cells. And they will change that environment and get a response against the tumor that can shrink that tumor and also generate that systemic response, which is what we're really after. Getting back to sort of what we were originally talking about, the thing that's really exciting about immunotherapy, there's two things. The first is, other than chemotherapy, it's the only approach that can really treat metastatic disease. And as we discussed, for solid tumors, it's the metastatic disease that generally what's going to Really kill the patient, really cause the problem. So it creates a whole new approach to treating the worst aspects of solid tumor. So that's really exciting. And the other aspect that's very, very exciting is just like we get immune memory against uh, a pathogen, you know, we've been vaccinated against uh, pathogens and we're not going to get them, we can develop immune memory against a tumor, which is really valuable because a lot of cancers. They go into remission. They're very quiet. They don't seem like they're there. They're not recognizable. And maybe a year, two years, five years, 10 years, as many as 15 years after they seem to have been gone, they show up again. The immune memory should be very capable of recognizing it when it shows up and immediately attacking it before it gets out of hand again. So there's a lot of value in immunotherapy in itself as a new way of treating cancer
1: you said there was uh, ten to fifteen different ways that uh, that cancers tend to use to uh, to avoid the immune system. is this again across all cancers or there's certain ones that have techniques that others don't
2: yeah, I think every tumor does not use every technique does not have every technique, but there's common themes, and there'll be more or less of one Type of suppressive mechanism than in another, so in a lot of the I do a lot of work in mice and artificial tumor models that we, we give the mice the cancer, and you know there's some models they recruit a lot of what we call myeloid derived suppressive cells they're, they're a phagocyte macrophage type cell that's very suppressive, and then there's another type of cell that's actually a T cell which is very suppressive it 's called a T regulatory cell, and a lot of these models will be very heavy on that right? So they'll probably have some of both, but often there's like, well, this is a very T-reg heavy model. And so those are the mechanisms that are sort of being used. And this one is a very myeloid derived suppressive cell T- regulatory model, suppressive model. So there's themes, right? And then there's other molecules they can make that are going to be immunosuppressive. And They'll have more or less of these sorts of other immunosuppressive molecules.
1: What about metastasis versus primary tumor? Again, are there different mechanisms yet of um, immunosuppression and metastases, Or when you talk about the 10 to 15 methods, that's pretty much for any solid tumor wherever it lives.
2: Yeah, there's going to be variability between the primary tumor and the metastatic disease, but it's not going to be that large right? Like the the, the metastatic tumor is not going to be radically different in how it is suppressing the immune response, but it's, it's going to be genetically different. That's quite clear. The metastases have different genetic changes than the primary tumors. They have other tendencies and they're going to have different tendencies of how they press, but in general, it's not going to be like completely different.
1: Okay, yeah, I just wondered if there was a difference. What about before chemo and after chemo? Does that unlock certain methods that tumors wouldn't use before, but now they do? Yeah, almost certainly
2: it does. Yeah, chemo, chemo will really, really put a lot of pressure on tumor cells. They will evolve. The ones that survive the chemo are often pretty radically different than the ones the tumor that started, and so that will include. All sorts of survival and immunosuppressive mechanisms are likely to be somewhat different. When you go, when you use chemo, you get a remission, it seems like the cancer is pretty well gone, and then it comes back, it tends to be quite different. Um, the first obvious thing is it's almost always very resistant to further chemotherapy. And so that's uh, the thing that happens. But now we're also finding that it's also quite likely to have very different uh, immune suppressive mechanisms, in part because it's been, um, the vast majority of it's been wiped out. And so a few selected cells have survived, and then they've repopulated. So they have differences from the parent clones. They've survived probably a lot because of the genetic and what we would, Called epigenetic around the genetic differences that they had as compared to the vast majority of cells.
1: What, um, if you were to characterize the epigenetics of cancer cells, I mean, I know that's a big statement, but um, I don't know what are there any particulars that come to mind that really stand out?
2: It's deregulated,
1: right? Is there like a reduction in methylation, a reduction in histone uh, acetylation?
2: You know, there could be global reductions or increases in methylation or histone acetylation, and they could be totally opposed by local increases or decreases in DNA methylation or histone acetylation, right? So in general, the tumors tend to be more methylated, but that's not a, a hard rule, but certain loci certain important genes may be methylated more frequently or may be un- demethylated and getting expressed because um, methylation is associated often with silencing of the gene. So the, the epigenetic changes are, are, are very variable, and there could be global changes, and then there could be local changes that are opposed, both of which matter in the biology of the tumor. But in general, compared to normal cells, the epigenetics... And the, the actual DNA sequencing, the mutations, are very much deregulated. The whole genome has been deregulated.
1: And then I guess that allows the opening up of abilities that, uh, I guess, embryo-like or stem cell-like.
2: Yes, exactly. Tumors express mm. a lot of, they express a lot of genes that are like, they're, it, it's like this this is not the right gene in the right tissue. But somehow this tumor is now expressing it when it should never be doing that. Or like you say, it's an embryonic gene that hasn't been expressed since uh fetal stage and now here it is expressed in this tumor so yeah they have very well, deregulated gene regulation which is uh, a hallmark of cancer
1: so what you know with your particular research is there anything that's looking promising in the next year or two that uh, you think you're going to have a breakthrough on
2: well you know uh, every every person working on cancer therapy has a particular strategy that they're working on and i work on something which is a little bit different with my my colleague uh, Nicole Steinmetz, who's at University of California San Diego. We identified a plant virus, P mosaic virus. It does not infect animals, but it turns out that it's very immunostimulatory. So if we get back to the basic idea, we want to put something into the tumor that's going to disrupt the suppression and. Create an immunostimulatory environment. We're working with this quite actively, this CalP mosaic virus. And, um, and it's, it's what I have my funding around that really supports most of the work in the lab is to work on this particular reagent to stimulate the immune response against a recognized tumor, get the immune response to be active and eliminate that tumor and increase the systemic immunity against that. Cancer type.
1: Okay. Well, very good. What's the best way for people to learn more about your research? Uh, you know, what are some resources for them? What's your website, et cetera?
2: Well, you know, you could go under my name at Dartmouth. I think searching under my name, unfortunately, the name firing F I E R I N G is an unusual name. So if you search in um, Google Scholar or PubMed for firing, particularly S firing, I'm the only thing that comes up, and you can. Another thing uh, is that I'm involved with a startup called Mosaic Immunoengineering, and the goal of the startup is to develop the CalP mosaic virus and other intellectual property that um, has been developed around it to get that into clinical trials and and trying to treat patients. So that would be another source of information going to the website for Mosaic Immunoengineering.
1: Okay, very good. Well, Stephen, thank you for coming on the podcast. It's really interesting, and I know there's a lot more to know about the immune system, but you know, I rarely get immunologists or people working with the immune system, so it sheds some good light on cancer, and, uh, and thank you for coming. Thank you, Richard. Thank you for inviting me.
0: If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs.